Good evening. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Pratt Library. On behalf of this, our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of trustees and directors, and the staff, we welcome you. We are pleased this evening to have as our Brown Lecture Series speaker, Mr. F. Michael Higginbotham. This lecture series is made possible through the generosity of the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. This evening we will have Michael I. Meyerson, Professor of Law, a Piper and Marbury Faculty Fellow, and Director of the Baltimore Scholars Program at the University of Baltimore to introduce our guest speaker. And I would like to add, if you have a chance, please come visit our exhibit in the African American Department. We have um, three exhibits, the 150th anniversary of Lincoln, the 1963 March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech, and we have the, uh, an exhibit on the inauguration of President Barack Obama. Again, welcome to the Pratt Library, and I present to you Mr. Michael I. Meyerson. Good evening. It's, uh, when, when Mike asked me to introduce him for this talk, I was incredibly flattered uh, and, and sort of feel a sense of responsibility because I want to sort of lay out sort of what makes his book so important. One of the most difficult things to do in America, it seems, is to talk about race. Well, that's not exactly true. What makes it hard is talking about race with someone who disagrees with you. It is really easy to talk about race with other ones not in their heads, but when you have to discuss with someone who either you think looks differently than you do or thinks differently than you do, then we get tongue-tied or we get we say offensive things or the dialogue just 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 dies. And so what what this book does is it explains, it teaches, it leads how to have a positive, meaningful dialogue about race in America. And I want to talk a little about why uh, Mike was such a perfect person to write the book. First of all, through his training. Uh, he went to Brown University, and I always like this. He, he majored in classics and ancient Greek history. Uh, it's a sense of the more you know, the wiser you are. The wider your vision, the more you see. He then got his uh, law degree from Yale and got a master's of law from, with honors from Cambridge University, where he was a Rotary scholar. So he has all the bona fides, he, he's, he's aware, but that's not enough. He became more and more educated. And what makes discussions about race possible is sort of both within the book and, as you'll see in a moment, within the author. Because there are a couple of things uh, that, sort of that, that you'll see when you read the book and when you listen to him. First of all, Mike has extraordinary vision. He can see in three directions at once. He can see behind. He can see what happened. He can see here. Where are we? What has changed and what has not? And most impressively, he can see into the future. He can see what might be. He can see also how he could continue to mess up. He sees both those opportunities, both to have real progress, lasting progress, or just continue or even go backwards. And he also has the wisdom to see how to get to the right future. But the other thing, at least you know, in working with Mike over the years, 
The other thing that is required for talking about race is actually incredibly simple. It's about respect. It's about respecting yourself and respecting others. And this book is just steeped with that kind of respect. So what you'll find in a moment is that this person will not only teach you what to say about race, but even how to think about talking about the most difficult subjects in America. I am honored and proud to introduce Michael Higginbotham. Wow. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Myerson. <laughs> Mike is the true definition of a friend and colleague. He, uh, anytime I ever want uh, some assistance, somebody to help me, Mike is there, but he's the first person to tell you when you're doing something wrong or when you need to do it better. I affectionately refer to Mike as the Michael Orr of the uh, Legal Academy in honor of our offensive tackle on the Ravens who has protected Joe Flacco so well over the last five years. And uh, they made a movie about Michael Orr called The Blind Side. Mike Morrison has protected my blind side on issues of race for the last 25 years. And while I've taken a few hits over those years, I'm still standing. I'm writing editorials, I'm writing articles and books, and I'm even talking to audiences like this about race issues. So Mike, thanks very much for protecting me, and uh, I appreciate uh, the generous introduction you gave me. I also want to thank uh, the Pratt Library for giving me this opportunity to speak about my book, and also uh, specifically Sylvia and Eddie Brown, uh, who have sponsored this lecture series. I've attended. Uh, lectures over the last couple of years and have greatly benefited from the dialogue that has occurred. And so I appreciate uh, what Eddie and Sylvia Brown have done to improve uh, the dialogue and discussion in our community. Uh, and lastly, uh, before I begin to talk about Ghosts of Jim Crow, I want to thank each and every one of you for coming out tonight. As Mike Morrison indicated, uh, it's not easy to discuss issues of race today. President Theodore Roosevelt once said, the credit belongs to those who enter the arena rather than to those timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. And so you folks deserve a lot of credit tonight for your willingness to enter into that arena. It is not easy to discuss these issues of race, particularly across racial lines, Whereas Mike Morris had indicated, many people disagree. And so my hat is off to you folks for your willingness to come out and enter that arena. To help us enter the arena tonight, I would like to begin with one of my favorite uh, presidents, and uh, that is uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And those of you familiar with the language of Lyndon Johnson will be delighted to know that. Um, this is the PG version uh, of, of President Johnson. Let's begin uh, with the words of President Johnson. We shall what happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. 
Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. President Johnson was correct. Uh, we shall overcome. We must overcome. And in many respects, as a nation, we have overcome. We've overcome slavery. We've overcome Jim Crow segregation. During President Johnson's term, we uh, passed anti-discrimination legislation, particularly the Voting Rights Act, the most democratizing piece of legislation we've ever passed in the history of the country. We implemented affirmative action programs, and most recently, of course, we've elected the first black president, Barack Obama. These are monumental developments in the history of American racial progress. But make no mistake about it, folks. Don't get it twisted. Progress does not mean post-racial. Progress does not mean that race is no longer a significant factor in opportunities and hardships in our society today. Let me give you two ways to look at American racial progress today. One is to look at the circumstances surrounding the shooting and wounding of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords just a few years ago. When Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was, was injured, she was immediately assisted by our Latino legislative assistant. She was operated on by an Asian American brain surgeon, and she was sent well wishes in the hospital by an African American president. What this says to me is that in our society today, irrespective of your race, you can aspire to and you can achieve the highest levels in our society. There's another way, however, to look at American racial progress today a more comprehensive way, a more concrete way, a much more revealing way. And that is to look at the socioeconomic index, whether it be wealth accumulation, whether it be unemployment, income levels, mortality rates, or education and graduation rates. There are huge disparities, alarmingly wide disparities, between whites and blacks. For income level and for graduation rates, it's significant gaps. For unemployment, it's over a two to one differential. And for wealth accumulation, it is 20 to one disparity between white and black. Now during Jim Crow, the explanations for these disparities were simple. That Jim Crow laws and practices mandated such inequitable results, made it most likely that you would have these disparities. But today, it's a little bit more complex. Some suggest that black irresponsibility uh, causes these disparities. Others suggest that uh, it is uh, black intellectual deficiency that causes these disparities. I wrote this book, Ghosts of Jim Crow, which 
provides a very different explanation for why these disparities continue. My theory, my argument in Ghosts of Jim Crow is that these disparities persist because we have a racial paradigm in this country, a racial model that was created during slavery times and that despite the progress we have made, the important progress, the progress that we all must recognize, despite that progress we've made, we continue to see this racial model demonstrated today. Three aspects to this model. One is racial hierarchy. And that includes both false notions of white superiority and black inferiority. The second aspect is racial exclusivity. And that includes both white and black desires for isolation and separation. And third is racial victimization. And that includes both external victimization of blacks by laws and practices that continue to disproportionately harm blacks, as well as internal victimization of blacks by blacks themselves. Now, most of my students would say, Professor, it's a very nice model that you've come up with, a very nice theory. And that might make you appear smart in the eyes of some folks. But you know what? For us, you have to have proof. You have to be able to demonstrate the support of that model. And so let me give you a few examples of why I think this model continues to exist in America today. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Jeremy Parody. And um, in Charles County, Southern Maryland in 2005, Jeremy Parody uh, was charged with arson. And he had set fire to some homes that were being built in the Indian Head land development. And uh, when asked why he set those fires, he and some friends, he indicated that he set those fires because blacks were moving into these homes and were going to move into this neighborhood, and he wanted to prevent that. This, of course, is an example, a recent example, of tipping point bigotry, something that was rampant during Jim Crow. And when you think about rate residential segregation today in America, and particularly in Maryland, where the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights issued a report two weeks ago that talked about Maryland being one of the most racially segregated states in terms of housing and education in the country. You want to think about the role that tipping point bigotry continues to play in that residential segregation that exists. Some of you may say, well, Professor, that's Maryland. And we have a long history, of course, of slavery and Jim Crow segregation. So what do you expect? Well, young Marcus uh, Allen, nine years old, may have expected a little bit more. He lived in Pennsylvania, where they have a long history of abolition of slavery. And young Marcus Allen, in 2009, a uh, young African-American male, nine years old, was a member of a daycare facility. 
And in that daycare facility, uh, it contracted with a suburban swim center, uh, the Valley Swim Center. And they contracted to have the daycare students um, swim in their facility for 60, 60 days. Uh, Marcus Allen went out uh, with the other daycare members who were also young black children from inner city Philadelphia. And uh, when they got into the swimming pool, uh, the white children uh, exited the pool. And the manager came over and asked young Marcus Allen and uh, his black daycare uh, members to exit the pool. He led young Marcus Allen out in tears. The next day, the manager canceled the contract. And when asked why, he said, because I felt that it would change the complexion of our swim facility. These are things that go on in America today. And whether it be in housing, or whether it be in swim facilities, or whether it be in schools, or in business, or in the criminal justice system, or in politics, these examples are extensive that exist in America today that reflect what I believe are ghosts of Jim Crow. Now, you don't have to believe me. I mean, you can ask young Marcus Allen. You can ask Jeremy Parody. You can ask individuals that are involved in some of the many examples that I provide in Ghosts of Jim Crow. Unfortunately, there are some who can no longer tell us what happened to them. One example of that is a fellow by the name of Troy Davis, executed in the state of Georgia in 2011 under circumstances that suggested he may not have committed any crime at all. Troy Davis was a 35-year-old African-American. He was convicted of murder, of killing an off-duty white police officer. Any time someone is murdered in our society, that is a tragedy particularly when it is a police officer, on duty or off duty. But the circumstances surrounding this case suggest that Troy Davis may not have committed any crime at all. During Jim Crow, blacks were often convicted under such circumstances. And when you look at the criminal justice system today and the disparities, the widespread disparities that exist, particularly in capital punishment, it is very important to think about the role that cases like Troy Davis's play in that disparity. There's a famous case called McCleskey versus Kemp. And that McCleskey versus Kemp case involves capital punishment in Georgia. It's a 1987 case. Warren McCleskey, an African American, argued that because there was this huge racial disparity, and he provided statistics that indicated that it was a four to one differential between black defendants whose victims were white and white defendants whose victims were black. Four times as likely that a black defendant would get the death penalty in Georgia. Goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Five to four decision. And the majority says, even if we were to accept Mr. McCleskey's argument and statistics of this four to one differential, even if we were to accept that, our notion of constitutional equality does not prevent such discrimination. 
Four justices in dissent, including two of my favorites, Baltimore-born Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan. Four justices in dissent said some of the most powerful words that I have ever heard written by Supreme Court justices. They said, what would be so wrong with us accepting Mr. McCleskey's argument and statistics? We think that the majority of five has a fear of too much justice. A fear of too much justice. And let me tell you something, folks. I'm afraid of a whole lot of things in this society. I'm still worried uh, and scared to watch reruns of Twilight Zone in the dark. And any time my 87-year-old father grabs his belt and looks at me and says, you better straighten up, I'm scared. But let me tell you something. I've never, ever been afraid of too much justice. And I suspect that none of you are either. Now, if these examples have resonated with you and you believe that we still have problems in our society dealing with race and that we are not in a post-racial society just yet, you want to stay tuned. You want to focus in on what the Supreme Court is doing today. Because if you're worried about cases like McCleskey versus Kemp in 1987, you've got the Super Bowl of civil rights this year. And you've got two major cases coming down from the Supreme Court dealing with voting rights and dealing with affirmative action. So if these examples have resonated with you, you really want to pay close attention to what is going to go on over the next couple of months. And perhaps we'll get two decisions in June that are significant in terms of enhancing or reducing the ghosts of Jim Crow. If these examples have resonated with you, I think it's also very important that you understand it's a two-way street. Blacks have a role to play in this racial model that continues to exist. And black folks who fail to recognize and value education and other legitimate vehicles for upward mobility in our society, black folks who recognize and believe that racism still exists, but turn to crime or give up because they perceive the obstacles are greater for them than for others in our society. Or black folks who turn to violence against innocent whites, such as those in 1992 who attacked Reginald Denny, a white fellow who was simply making deliveries and doing his job and was, was in a predominantly black area while the first verdict of the Rodney King case came down in Los Angeles, those blacks contribute to this racial model that continues to exist in our society. So it's a two-way street. And both whites and blacks have a significant role to play in maintaining or reducing this racial model. Now, I can see some of you getting a little antsy. Yeah, sweat coming off the, the forehead, steam coming out the ears. Um, I am delivering a message, and that message may make some of you uncomfortable. But as a messenger, I have always felt that it's very important if you're going to deliver a message, and that message may not be welcomed from some, 
that you also should provide a way to do it better. You also should provide a solution to the problem. And while in the book I talk about Charles Dickens in his famous novel, A Christmas Carol, where he talked about Ebenezer Scrooge and the ghost of Christmas past, and he says, uh, Scrooge says to the ghost of Christmas past, are these the things that have transpired? And the ghost says that they are what they are. Do not blame me. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. So I'm delivering a message, but I'm also in that same spirit attempting to provide a solution. Because I believe that if you're going to criticize, you ought to be able to suggest how to do it better, how to do it differently. And um, that leads to my solutions, the hardest part of uh, my book, but what I am most proud of in terms of Ghosts of Jim Crow. First thing we have to do is to recognize that we still have a problem. The eye cannot see what the mind does not comprehend. And so folks, if we don't understand, if we don't recognize that we continue to have a problem in our society, we're never going to fix it. Once we recognize that, we need to empower and improve. We need to empower our minority communities, and our minority communities need to continue to improve. Let me give you a few examples of this empowerment. One is we need to eliminate anti-democratic voting practices, uh, voter ID laws and other laws that limit Americans' opportunity to participate in the American way. Those need to be altered. Those need to be changed. We need to democratize our political system, not democratize it. And so we need to eliminate those voter ID laws and other anti-democratic practices. We also uh, need to empower uh, our, uh, our minority communities. And one of the ways we can do that is an American Jobs Act. Unemployment, as I said, is alarmingly high in our minority communities. We need to create job training programs and we need to make those job training programs tied to real jobs once people successfully complete them. In terms of minority communities improving, we must value education. There's no question that education is the most legitimate vehicle for, vehicle for upward mobility in our society. We must value that. And we must, in terms of value, not only talk the talk, we must walk the walk. We must put our time, our effort, our energy, our resources into our children and those who we are responsible for in terms of helping them to take advantage of the educational options that continue to exist. Third aspect, we must integrate and equalize our society. In terms of educational opportunities, we must equalize the funding for our public institutions. It is outrageous that our institutions are funded in the inequitable way that they continue to be funded based on property taxes. And so we must equalize opportunity in education in terms of funding. 
We also must be real serious about the continuing racial discrimination that goes on. We need to eliminate racial profiling and we need to criminalize racial discrimination. We want to be serious about crime. Let's be serious about those who discriminate on the basis of race. Now, uh, there are plenty of other solutions in the book. And I encourage you folks to take a look at the various suggestions that are in the book. Um, the the uh, thing that I want to make you aware of uh, as I conclude my remarks is why this book at this time? Why this book at this time? I wrote this book for two reasons. One, to remind folks of how far we have come as a country. And two, to encourage to complete the race that we have begun. To complete what we started in 1776 when we said these self, when we identified these self-evident truths that all are created equal. I know that some of you out there say, I'm tired of talking about race. It's been a long time. We've had, uh, you know, many cases and laws, and we need to look to the future, not to the past. I'm tired of talking about it. Let's move on. I know that others of you are saying, I never got my 40 acres in a mule. I wanted it yesterday. I need it today, and I better have it tomorrow. For those of you in one of those camps or somewhere in between, what I would suggest to you is that I hope the words of the famous jazz singer Bessie Smith, who uh, performed a song called Dancing in the Rain in the 1920s, I hope her words will resonate with you. She said, it's a long road, baby, but it's got to find an end. So I picked up my bags and I tried it again. It's a long road, baby, but it's got to find an end. So I picked up my bags and I tried it again. American racial progress can only be accomplished through continued vigilance and efforts by all Americans of all colors and races. I remind you of what has been accomplished. Harriet Tubman, the greatest Amtrak conductor to ever live. 19 separate missions on the Underground Railroad. Over 300 individuals rescued from slavery. I picked up my bags and I tried it again. <laughs> and you know, a little technical difficulties there. <laughs> that does happen.
Okay, folks, uh, we had a little technical difficulty. We're back on track now. Um, as I said, Harriet Tubman, 19 separate missions, over 300 individuals rescued. Thurgood Marshall, over a dozen cases before the Supreme Court, before Jim Crow segregation was overturned by the Supreme Court. Over a dozen cases. Eighteen eighty-three, the Civil Rights Act was struck down by the United States Supreme Court. Over eighty years later, uh, President Lyndon Johnson and Dr. Martin Luther King signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, outlawing race discrimination. Eighty years of struggle. Dr. Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King, Ronald Reagan signing a national holiday for Dr. King. Took twenty years to get that done. Uh, an apology for slavery. Emancipation Proclamation issued in 1863. Finally, Congress apologizes for slavery in 2011. Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, fighting against apartheid, comes out, of course, becomes the president of South Africa. He picked up his bag and he tried it again. And of course, we've had many individuals run for president, but Barack Obama, and Joe Biden picked up their bags and tried it again. Um, in my judgment, there are important things that all of you can do. And the book Ghosts of Jim Crow provides a roadmap for us to get to a post-racial society, for us to get to where many of us say we want to get to. Fifty years ago, Dr. King talked about a dream. He articulated, 50 years ago this year, he articulated a dream on the Washington Mall that individuals would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And I, for one, believe that each and every one of us can continue to live out that dream, um, provided that we, in fact, pick up the bag and try it one more time. I wrote the book because I wanted to remind you of the progress, but also to encourage you to continue to race, to go back to your neighborhoods and your institutions and continue to work to integrate those institutions, continue to work to integrate your neighborhoods, continue to support legislation that will, in fact, help to break up to defeat this racial model that continues to exist. And I think if we do that, we can all have a chance to live out that dream. For this dream today in battle, with its back against the wall, to save the dream for one, it must be saved for all. Thank you very much. Thank you. I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties. Thank you, Dr. Hickenbotham, for such a stimulating and exciting lecture. We'll have about 10 minutes for Q&A, and then uh, Mr. Hickenbotham will be signing books outside the auditorium. So do we have any questions? Yes. Okay. Um, so I've been um, on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and was sent to a conference called the White Privilege Conference last 
Well, I think race does exist uh, in many respects. It existed in the law for many, many years in this country. And um, today we say that uh, we want to be colorblind and in a post-racial society. But I think as Justice Blackmun said so well in one of his many dissents before the Supreme Court, in order to get beyond race, we must first take it into account. And so what we're trying to do is provide a remedy for individuals who have been separated out and discriminated on the basis of race. So while medically, scientifically, we may not be in fact different races, I think for DNA purposes, the medical uh, uh, society has come out, the, the, the AMA and many of the doctors have come out and said, for DNA purposes, we are in fact one race, the human race. Um, for law purposes, and I think for social construct purposes, how most of us view each other, we view each other in racial terms. And so in order to get beyond race, we first got to deal with it and provide an adequate remedy. And so I think that, that's what's going on in terms of the social construct versus uh, other things. Yes? Just to add to that, I think that if we don't want to look at race because we don't want to look at the consequences of race, and it's the consequence of race that we're here living with, and it makes it more uh, I certainly have tremendous respect for uh, Julian Bond and uh, what, what he has done, and uh, I think that um, it's very helpful to the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate your lecture, but I think you gave kind of like a rosy picture of what's really going on. We live in a very divided nation, and the things that you mentioned, I believe that white whites need to take a look at themselves because all of the things that you mentioned were created by racism. Racism was created by whites in this country. And another comment I have is I don't know if anybody saw yesterday on Politics Nation where they showed a picture of what the NRA had of President Obama in zombie form, covered in blood. He looked absolutely, the, the president, the way that they had the president was absolutely disgraceful. And this has been going on since the president has taken office, dressed like, like Hitler and things of that nature. And a lot of, we are in a very divided country, it's a very racist country. I do not believe that we will be in a post-racial society until whites, and there's no offense to any white people in here, until they take a hard look at themselves and really, under, since they created it, and since a lot of things that are happening to people of color, especially uh, blacks, you know, we, you, know, you know, this country's original sin is slavery, and of course, what they did to the Native Americans. And what do you what do you think about that? I didn't hear any mention of you saying that. And also, what do you think um, how the president is being treated? I know he's being treated the way he is because he's the first African American. But why do you think he's being treated that way? 
uh, I appreciate your comment. And um, one of the things I would say is that uh, if I painted a rosy picture, um, I, uh, I'm a little surprised because I, I don't think it was uh, full of roses. I think there was a whole lot of thorns in there. But um, to specifically answer your question, um, I think that both whites and blacks have a role to play, as I indicated. I think the country has a history of tremendous race discrimination. No question about that. And I think that both whites and blacks must look in the mirror. Whites have a role to, to, to play in terms of the discrimination that has occurred, the white privilege that continues to exist. They must look in the mirror, no question about that. But also, blacks have a role to play in this racial model. And I don't think we want to ignore that aspect. I think it's very crucial to understand that we are in fact in this together, that we are in fact all Americans, and specifically with respect to President Obama. I think you will appreciate what is said in the book because I believe that President Obama has been treated with a great deal of disrespect. My dad was a Tuskegee Airman, uh, as well as my uncle. One of the things that uh, so upset them was when they were in their uniforms and white officers, white enlisted men, would not salute them. And they said, you don't need to respect me as an individual, but respect the office. And so what I see going on with President Obama, and look, American politics is filled with folks that disagree. So there's no problem with disagreeing. But the way you disagree and the things that have been done to President Obama in some respects, I think are tremendously disrespectful to the office. Why is that going on? I think part of it has to do with the fact that President Obama is the first black president. And it's not only me that looks at that, there are others, uh, including President, uh, former President Jimmy Carter, who have indicated that. When uh, one of our congresspersons stood up and said at the State of the Union address, which is discussed in the book, Ghosts of Jim Crow, said, you lie. That was unprecedented. And so that, to me, is a clear example of what you suggest in terms of the disrespect. The examples that you gave, I think, come from individuals who um, are way outside of the mainstream. But when you look at a congressman saying you lie, to me, that is something that we really, all of us, need to identify and object to strenuously because to me that clearly reflects that there's a differing treatment of President Obama because he is black. So I think if you look at the book there are a number of examples that are provided that I think will resonate greatly with you in terms of what you have suggested that whites need to look at what is going on today. But I also think there are things in the book that suggest that blacks need to also look at their role post Jim Crow as well. And it's going to take both groups to get to a post-racial America. Not only one group, but both groups. Well, that's a great segue to my question. Uh, thank you, Dr. Higginbotham, for your courage in acknowledging um, that 
we are not in a post-racial America with this book. Um, in your solutions, I know you said that was a, it was a brief synopsis of many solutions in your book, but them being uh, acknowledging racism, um, empowering and improving, and I believe the last one was integrate and equalize. Those solutions, in my opinion, or from my viewpoint, seem to be focused on white America. Do your solutions in the book also encompass what the Africans in America need to be doing in order to combat this racism? We have our youth group here today, uh, Urban Youth Initiative Project, ages 7 to 13. Uh, we're out here. <laughs> and I feel, it, I feel it imperative not only that they know what our ancestors encountered, but also what exactly they should be doing so that, um, as we should be doing, so it's better for them and it's better for their children and so forth and so on. I, I think clearly uh, I, I agree with you in terms of history. You have to recognize where you've come from in order to know where you're going to go. And so the book talks a great deal about the history of America and where we have come from, no question about that. But the book also talks about this racial model that I mentioned earlier. And that racial model includes both what whites need to do as well as what blacks need to do. And so when you look at the racial model, when you talk about uh, improve, that's looking at what the minority community needs to do, what blacks, what we need to do in terms of improvement. And it's not only valuing education and other legitimate vehicles for upward mobility, but it's also, of course, avoiding criminal activity, avoiding drug abuse. It also in, in, involves taking care of your family. It also involves looking out for those who cannot look out for themselves. And so it's important, I think, to understand all of those aspects in terms of what we, as the black community, can do. There are specific examples that I provide, such as a national mentoring program in terms of a solution. When you look at the children that are doing the best today, the minority children that are doing the best today, one of the things that's helping them out is they have individuals, whether it be friends, whether it be family members, or whether it be others that they can look up to that provide a role model for these individuals. And many of them, it's actually classmates or those uh, who are older siblings. And so one of the things that I suggest is a national mentoring program, one that is funded by um, privately funded. And each individual child who is from a school that is an impoverished school, each individual child should be assigned a mentor from this national mentoring program. And so when you start to think about specific things that need to be done in the minority community, the book provides specific suggestions of what we need to do as a minority community, what we as blacks need to do to, in fact, make sure that this racial model does not continue on our part. Other questions? That was me. Um, good evening. Thank you for your book. I started reading it on Sunday. I am enjoying it. I just want to know how can we make um, the Supreme Court 
do these things that you said in the book. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that you were saying in the book, and it still carry on today because the Supreme Court didn't act back there and still didn't act in the 21st century. So how do we make it like we have a high um, incident of black men that have felons on their racket, and they can't get a good job because of that. So how can we get that to overturn with Congress and, and the senators? Because if they can get that wiped off, they can get jobs and stuff like that. Like you're saying, you know, it's up to us, but it's also up to our senators and our Congress people. Because whatever they say, then it falls down on the state level. And when you was talking about different um, programs, we have one in Chicago. I wish it was here in Baltimore, Black Star Project, where 100% of these African-American youth, black male youth, go to college. They went last year, they went the year before, and the year before, like five years in a row. 100% and 100% of them graduated from college and you know, making our community which is better. And also, um, Terry Williams talked about the post-traumatic sla uh, slave syndrome. A lot of us are dealing with that. So how do we move past that? And that's it. Thank you. Well, uh, first, it's uh, very difficult to get this, uh, to make the Supreme Court do anything. Um, <laughs> We, we do have a constitutional democracy, and the Supreme Court, of course, is the highest judicial entity. And uh, no one can tell them what to do except for five justices uh, on the Supreme Court. One of the things that uh, I would suggest is that um, we continue to be vigilant in terms of um, protesting and availing ourselves of our constitutional uh, constitutionally democratic rights uh, to, in fact, let our Congress people, our representatives, know what we think is important, what we think in terms of solutions to the racial discrimination problems that continue to exist. Um, the court, it, it is my hope, and I've suggested in Ghosts of Jim Crow, uh, that the court continue to recognize the value of the Voting Rights Act, that the court continue to recognize the value of creating diversity in our society, the value that affirmative action plays in other programs that we've implemented to help increase diversity in our schools and in our neighborhoods and other places. I would hope that the Supreme Court recognizes that value. And in the past cases, um, a number of justices have in fact recognized that the creation of diversity is a compelling government interest in higher education. I would hope that they continue to recognize that the creation of diversity is a compelling government interest not only in higher education but in lower education as well as in other aspects of our society. And that's what the book talks about. In terms of uh, our legislation and in terms of our executive branch, I think we must continue uh, to encourage various groups to support legislation that will not only help diversity, but will also in fact serve to reduce um, the inequities that continue to exist in education, in housing, uh, in uh, business, as well as in the political spectrum. So again, I think the book has a number of solutions, a number of suggestions along the lines uh, of what we can do uh, to continue to break up the uh, racial model that exists.
Hi, how are you this evening? It was interesting that that you had your technical difficulty and the dialogue (laughs) box came across Harriet Tudman. And in the dialogue box, I don't know if you noticed, it was stuck on waiting for the program to respond. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I found that extremely profound, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it, it kind of it kind of led me into something else that, you know, and this is this is probably going to be very unpopular. But, um, you know, I think if 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 President Obama weren't black, but if he were white, we'd be asking for his head on a stake in the middle of the square. Unemployment for African-Americans is double digits. And we're past the point where we can blame this on someone else. I support him. I voted for him. But in the same respect, we need to start looking at things a little bit differently. We have more African-Americans in higher positions in government than we've ever had, than we ever probably will have moving forward because of the way that they're, they're restructuring the voting laws. But... You know, we need to start looking a little bit harder. We have a mayor here, but yet and still we we have an African-American mayor, three in the last 12 years, but yet and still our dropout rate in this city is well over 40 percent for African-American males. So I think one of the things that we need to look at a little bit more, I think that, you know, racism exists, but I still think it's a red herring toward, you know, economic growth in this country. That's just my my opinion. Racism does continue to exist. We need to recognize that. But racism, despite the fact that it continues to exist, it never should be an excuse. So, yes, we have tremendous progress that has been made in this country, as I indicated. Tremendous progress has been made. But we also need to understand that we need to deal with the disparities that continue to exist. And as you mentioned, yes, we have African-American leadership, but we also have a a constitutional democracy. And while I think that President Obama has suggested a number of programs that might be helpful, those programs have yet to be implemented. He has an American Jobs Act that he proposed, which I think would do a great deal to reducing the disparity that you mentioned in terms of unemployment. That American Jobs Act has not been passed. And what I suggest in the book is not only do we need to support that American Jobs Act, we need to basically have a Marshall-type plan where we rebuilt Europe after World War II. We need to have that type of a plan for our urban areas, for our minority areas where unemployment is ridiculously high. And if we, in fact, target those areas, we can clearly make a difference. I mean, you know, uh, there's no question that we've done that in the past when we targeted employment, when we when we created uh, employment training programs. There's no question we can reduce unemployment in this country, particularly if we target certain areas. And I think that's what we need to do. And the book talks about uh, specific suggestions on reducing employment in high unemployment areas. Good evening, Professor Higginbotham and everyone. Um, First off, I want to say that the book was well written and informative. Um, I want to kind of stay in the realm of where we are right now uh, with my question. It it pertains to education. In the book, you mentioned that in predominantly white elementary schools, approximately 90% of the teachers are qualified. You know, like, like in the state of Maryland, 
that would mean that the teachers have passed the praxis and so on. Um, and in black elementary schools, it's roughly 66 percent of teachers who are qualified. I believe that education is that great equalizer, despite what the numbers may suggest. Um, but my thing is what I've noticed in the black community here in Baltimore with some is that you have parents who feel that they've been underserved in their education. Which, of course, would explain some of the disparities that we see in education. How do we get the parents to buy into the notion that education is that great equalizer? Because the students can get resources from school, after school programs, but in my belief, I think that parents still have a great role, if not the greatest role, in reinforcing the belief that education is imperative. How do we address that? How do we get parents to buy into it, especially in the age of austerity now where so many of our political leaders, uh, especially in, in the South, are against progressive policies that would help to eliminate some of these disparities that you pointed out in the book? Well, again, I think it's a, it's a two-way street. Um, we as a society have to make certain that our schools provide that opportunity. Once that opportunity is provided, parents should buy into the notion that they also, of course, have a responsibility. So that once the opportunities are created, parents need to make sure that their children are going to take advantage of those opportunities and deliver. So it's, a, it's, it's really a two-way street. And that's what I try to talk about in the book, how the opportunities must be created so that people don't get discouraged. And when you're talking about creating opportunities, you're, you're, you're talking about making sure that there are specific, um, sp making sure that not only are there job training and educational training opportunities, but there are specific carrots that are tied, specific benefits that are tied to children responding and doing well. So that if they, in fact, go to school, get good grades, there are opportunities that are going to be there. They're going to be rewarded for, in fact, valuing education and doing well. Parents, I would think, would understand when those opportunities are provided and when they see the rewards and, in fact, will reinforce that their kids are doing well and, tr and trying hard and will reinforce the fact that the kids need to continue to do that. So I think it's a two-way street. And you mentioned the fact that people are discouraged, that they don't see the opportunities being provided in the schools, which is why, in fact, we have to continue to create opportunities in those schools so people will, in fact, recognize the opportunity, take advantage of it. And I believe that when those opportunities are provided, people will, in fact, recognize and take advantage. I, I mean, I see that occurring in a lot of places. And I think it's unfortunate when it doesn't occur. But as I mentioned, the equal funding aspect, I think, is a critical component. I mean, you can't start folks out in a disadvantage and then expect them to value equally uh, when they're not, in fact, being given an equal opportunity. So uh, to me, the book talks about that aspect. But it is a two-way street. We've not only got to deliver a quality product, so that folks then recognize that they have something to value and to take advantage of. I, um, 
I'm going to ask you to look at your crystal ball. Ah. Say, in, in, in the next 20 years, how do you think this country will view race in regards to African Americans? I ask this question because I'm thinking about Hispanics and the growing assimilation of Hispanics. I read a New York Times article, they're the new Italians. And just the, the constant changing of race. The, you know, the Arabs who are Caucasian, they've been racialized when they fall out of, out of favor with white America. Will in the, the next 20 years, will race be still a black problem? Oh, that's a that's that's a that's a that's a tough that's a tough question. I, I will uh, do my best with my crystal ball here. Um, it really all depends, I think, upon what our society does, what the folks in this room do, what our society does in terms of attempting to destroy the racial model that uh, I think continues to exist in our society. We can destroy that model, and the book Ghosts of Jim Crow provides a roadmap to do that. But it really depends on what we decide to do. I mean, if we continue to ignore the problem, if we think that because we have a black president, you know, we're in a post-racial society and that we've solved all of our racial problems, then, then 30 years from now, my crystal ball will say we'll be exactly in the same place we are today. But I think if we continue to be vigilant, if we, in fact, look at some of my suggested proposals, and um, if we critique those proposals and perhaps come up with some of our own and begin to implement those proposals, I think we're in a very different place in 30 years than we are today. If you look at the evolution of racial progress, there's no question that we have made tremendous progress. There's no question about that. But if you also look at what has transpired over the last 10 or 20 years, we have also turned the clock back in many respects. And so for me, and the book talks about this, there's an ebb and flow. We've had four periods in this country where we had a chance to really, in my view, eradicate racial um, disparities, er eradicate racial inequality. At the beginning of this country, we could have done it. We didn't do it. We, in fact, instituted slavery when we had an opportunity to eradicate it. We also had an opportunity during the Reconstruction period. And what happened is we, of course, ended Reconstruction and implemented Jim Crow segregation. We had a chance during the Civil Rights Movement. And in fact, what we've done over the last 20 years is, in some respects, turn the clock back to eliminate and reduce affirmative action efforts, to eliminate the diversity, and in fact, to reinstitute some of our former practices. And so for me, 30 years from now, it depends upon what we do today, what we do over the next decade in terms of valuing diversity, continuing to improve what we have done, or do we revert back? And um, I've always been an optimist. <laughs> so if you ask me 30 years from now, uh, and I'll still be here, hopefully all of us will, will still be here 30 years from now, um, we will have instituted a lot of uh, the suggestions in Ghosts of Jim Crow, and we will, in fact, be much better off than we were today. Will we be post-racial? I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you.
I would like to thank you all on behalf of the Pratt Library for attending Professor Hickenbotham's lecture. We have his books outside for sale, so please stop by and get your copy, and he will be kind enough to sign it at probably at the end of the hallway. So again, thank you all for coming out.